is David and Goliath basically about you and how you can be like David and Goliath or basically about him, the one who really took on the, mate, the only giants that can really kill us, you see. And so his victory is imputed to us. Who's it really about? That's the fundamental question. And when that happens, then you start to read the Bible new, you know. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the, into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all, while God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. <laughs> is that a type? See, that's not typology, that's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Job. Bible is not about you, it's about Jesus. Yet we find ourselves in his story and he invites us into his story. The video that I just played is a video clip of Tim Keller uh, who passed away and went to heaven to be with the Lord this week. And I want to honor this man's life and ministry because his teachings and his writings have had a profound impact on my life personally and I know on the life of many of you and on my family's life as well so I just want to honor him I'm thankful for people who faithfully serve and leave a testimony behind of integrity and a testimony of uh, commitment dedication to his family uh, Tim Keller has probably become one of the most popular pastors and teachers uh, and sought after pastors and teachers in our day that he remained humble and as far as I know taught the, the word of God with truth and uh, honored God with his life and, and his family which is even more important way more important than what he does on stage because uh, without 
truth behind the scenes, what we do and say up here really rings empty. But I'm thankful for a man of God that was truly living out his life. He wasn't perfect. I didn't agree with him on everything, but God used him in such a powerful way. His book, Prodigal God, if you have not read it, I recommend it. It It's a book that literally changed my life. And the focus on grace rather than performance and the stories that he he shares in that book, it, it opened my eyes to God's grace in my life. But it also opened my eyes to a new way to study the Bible. Because I was, I was raised um, under some pastors and teachers that kind of used the Bible as a springboard. And then they would read a verse and teach whatever they wanted to teach. I'm thankful for uh, people who dig into scripture and teach it according to what thus saith the Lord, what the word of God says. So if you're turning in your Bibles to the book of Job, I was thinking this week, studying through this about uh, my life uh, as just a child. When I was in kindergarten... Can any of you guys remember back that far? I I have specific, distinct memories of kindergarten, and most of them aren't good. Most of them are when I was getting in trouble. I know you can't imagine that. But I can remember specifically, clearly in kindergarten, we were playing a game in class. And yes, I was doing things I wasn't supposed to do. But we were competing against one another. There were teams we were competing against other teams. And I remember the distinct feeling in my heart, the passion to win that game. I can remember it vividly. I wanted to win that game, and when I won, I was happy. When I lost, I was not happy. And little did I know at that point in time in kindergarten that what I was experience was what, what I was experiencing was really a, a little consequence to the rest of my life. It felt like everything to me in that moment. But it really played a small role in the storyline of my life. I can flash forward to when I was playing Little League baseball, and it was much the same way. Every single at bat, every pitch, every play was life or death for me. That was all that mattered. That was all that existed. I was so into the game that I lived and I died by that game, and that was my entire world, my entire existence. It was all that mattered to me to the extent that after one game, I had behaved so badly on the field when something didn't go the way that I wanted it to that a mom of one of my teammates who sat the bench because he was a little guy, couldn't hit the ball, couldn't catch a ball. He was just a nice little guy. And his mom came up to our coach after the game who was giving me a ride home and he caught us in the parking lot. And she told him that it was a shame that he allowed me to play the way I was acting on the field and her son who might not be able to hit the ball as far or catch as many balls was someone who was respectful, someone who had sportsmanship and she was exactly right. But the point is that when I was on that field and I was playing, I thought that was all that mattered. Those games were everything to me. But what was happening wasn't this world that was created for Nathan to be able to win at life. What was happening was those games were preparing and shaping me to be the kind of man that knew how to live by rules, to be the kind of man who knew how to treat others with respect, to honor the authority in my life and to never give up no matter how hard it got. I didn't even know that. I thought it was about winning the game, yet it was about shaping my character. 
we're not very good in this moment in time in seeing the big picture, especially God's perspective and seeing life through God's eyes because we get so caught up in this moment, in this deal, in this sale, in this game, in this fill in the blank, whatever matters to us. We get so hyper-focused on that that we lose the big picture. And the reason is because our knowledge is limited. Our wisdom is limited. And we're going to see this truth played out in the book of Job today. Just as a, a way of introduction, the book of Job is one of the oldest, we believe it's the oldest book in the Bible. Um, it's set in a land called Uz, which is far away from Israel. And Job was most likely a contemporary of Abraham. So we know that Moses actually goes back and tells the story all the way from creation. So some of us are probably thinking, well, that's got to be the oldest book. Well, it was actually written by Moses who lived way after Abraham lived. And this is actually telling the story of non-Israelites. We don't know the exact his historical time period when this happened. We believe that it was around the time of Abraham, maybe a little bit before. But the, the book doesn't tell us that. We just know through history. And I think it's important that there's no clear historical time period because it allows us to zoom out and look at this story and do an overview of this story, realizing that it, it's, it's not necessarily something that's limited to a moment in time. It's something that affects all of eternity. And the focus is on the story and the questions that are raised in this book is really why this book was written. This book is obviously divine revelation because it begins by giving us a glimpse into heaven, into the throne room of God, which as human beings, we don't have that perspective. Globe, Job or whoever wrote this book about Job did not have that perspective, except that God revealed it to them, that this is what was going on behind the scenes. When all Job could see was what was going on right around him. So I want us to look at the storyline of the book of Job. Last week I had the privilege of walking through the book of Esther and basically chapter by chapter telling the whole story. Well, since there's 42 chapters in the book of Job, I don't have time to do that this morning. And all God's people said, amen. Yes. So uh, we're going to have to skip through this, but I want to break it down into three different sections. The first section is the prologue, and it's just the first two chapters. And it introduces us to this man named Job, who the Bible says is blameless, righteous, and he honors God with his life. This doesn't mean that he was sinless. He was not perfect, but he was righteous and blameless because he lived in relation with God based on God's Word. Now, this was before the law of God, but we know that even back into the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, at some point, God taught them about sacrifices. We're not told exactly when that happened, but when we go from chapter three, where they're removed from the garden, move into chapter four, Adam is teaching his sons to offer sacrifices. So at some point, God taught him. That to have a right relationship with him after sin entered this world, a sacrifice had to be made. Blood had to be shed. And that introduces this idea that goes throughout scripture. We even see Job in this book offering sacrifices. 
for himself and for his family. So Job is blameless and righteous before God, not because he's perfect or he earned it, but because he is living according to God's word that was given to him. And we don't know exactly what revelation he had because it was before uh, Moses wrote Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. But we do know that he had a revelation from God. We also see this glimpse into God's throne room. It zooms out from this man on earth. And we see that God is in heaven, surrounded by the sons of God, which is a way that scripture talks about angelic beings, which includes angels and demons. We don't know exactly what's going on, but it seems like a courtroom scene where God is the judge. God is in control and his creatures come before him for a reason. And I love what we see in heaven. This should give you pause this morning and it should give you hope. Because what we see in God's throne room, the divine courtroom, is that God is commending Job before the angels and even before the demons and Satan himself. Which tells us that God sees us. We live our lives before God's eyes. God cares about our lives. He's not separated from us. He's not distant. He is involved. He cares about your life. He loves you. And he's your judge. Everything you do, every thought you have, every action you take, every interaction with other people is before the eyes of God. Which is terrifying in one sense. And it's also comforting in another sense when we see Job going through suffering that God cares and God's there and God is watching him. We also see there's Satan in the throne room of God and Satan is the accuser. He is the prosecutor. He's standing before God, but he's not an equal with God. He's not standing beside God. He's not on the same level as God. He is under God and he answers to God. He can make his case. He can appeal to God. He can make requests, but God is the one in control. And we see what Satan is doing in this chapter. He is accusing God and his people. That's what Satan does. God's attacking God, accusing God and accusing his people. He's the complete opposite of everything that God is. God is good and lovely and beautiful and just. Satan is evil. He's disgusting. He's unrighteous. He lies. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. He's a divider. And Satan challenges God. That Job is only honoring God because of his blessing in his life. So when Satan challenges God to allow him, to allow him, he has to ask, to attack Job, God allows him to do that, but he sets parameters and only allows him to go so far. Does that not give you hope in your life? I mean, this story is, is scary as we read through it because God allows incredible suffering, things I hope I will never, ever have to go through in my life. Losing family members, losing children. Yet even in that, God is saying you can only go this far. 
Um, I, God is completely sovereign, completely in control in this story. And God allows Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And if you read all 42 chapters of this book, you're going to get to the end of this book. And you're still going to have the question, why does God allow Satan to inflict suffering on Job? Because God never answers that question. That's not why this book was written. God answers some other questions in this book that are important for us to understand. And we're going to be studying through those. But this book does not really answer the question as to why God allows suffering. Except I think the biggest hint we have in this story is the fact that this story is recorded in scripture. That is the biggest clue in and of itself as to why God allows suffering. God uses Job's story and he uses Job's suffering and he uses Job's blessing to reveal himself to the world, which tells us that Job's suffering was not wasted. We're probably 4,000 years separated from this man. And we're still talking about him this morning. We're still using his story, his life, his pain, his suffering to make God look beautiful and to glorify God. The scary thing is that many enemies of God, many agnostics and atheists will use this book to attack God. And they absolutely, totally miss the story and the beauty that is found in this book. Because this book is one of the greatest testaments to the grace and the mercy and the love of God. So it should encourage us that none of our suffering is wasted. The real questions in this book and that this book deals with is the question, is God just? Is God righteous? Does God always do the right thing? And does he rule his world justly? Because from our perspective, church, it doesn't always look like he does. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where it just seemed like God forgot about you or God treated you unfairly. But I've been in those situations. I've walked through those situations with friends and family members, and I don't have all the answers. But the question that is answered in this book is, is God just and does he rule his world justly? And God illustrates this in an amazing, powerful, heartbreaking, inspiring way. In one day, Job's children die. All of his children die when a building collapses on them. And this is a direct attack from Satan. Directly from Satan. He's responsible. His employees and probably friends who work for him are all slaughtered, murdered, his cattle. All of his possessions are stolen. And then... Painful boils break out on his skin. He loses everything and he's left wondering why. He loses his children, his relationship with his wife, even though she's still alive. He loses his health, his possessions, his respect, his influence, and his friends. Job testifies of this and he says, Naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know that those would be the words that came out of my mouth in this circumstance. Yet he finishes by saying, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. 
We see Job's wife who tells him to curse God and die. And while I agree with Job that she is speaking as one of the foolish women, I want us to stop and think about what she endured, what she went through. I, I can't even imagine. And I don't think God is nearly as hard on Job's wife as a lot of preachers are when they preach this story. So I don't want to dishonor her this morning. I am thankful that I didn't have to preach this sermon last week on Mother's Day. I got to preach Esther, who was an honorable, godly mother. But we do see her weakness and her failure and her doubt and her fear. But we also see Job showing us what godly leadership looks like as he leads his wife in a righteous way. Then we see Job's friends, the closest people to him outside of his family, and really just about all he's left with. They come to him, which is a good thing, but they don't come to comfort. They come to him to accuse him. They play the part of Satan. They speak the words of Satan just as Job's wife did. The whole reason Satan attacked Job and asked God to allow him to attack Job is so that Job would curse God. So his wife is speaking the words of Satan. His friends are the accusers. They argue with him. They preach at Job in the middle of his suffering. Have you ever had someone come to you and preach to you in the middle of your suffering? That is literally the last thing that we need when we're going. A lot of times we just need someone to listen to us. Sometimes we need to keep our mouth shut and just cry with people. And if you've ever been through a situation like this, you can relate to that and understand that. But they argue, they accuse. They're used by Satan. And these three friends that we're introduced to in chapters 1 and 2 really show us how not to be a friend. But the interesting thing about these friends is they say many really true things about God. Everything they say is not wrong. A lot of the things they say is correct, yet they use it in the wrong context. They don't have understanding of everything that's happening behind the scenes. And we need to realize our own limited knowledge when we try to speak into people's lives. We think we know what's going on. We think we know why things happen. We don't. We don't always understand why. Then moving to the second section in the storyline, we see that Chapters 3 through 37, which makes up most of the book, the vast majority of the book, is a section that is some very deep Hebrew poetry. It's hard for it to translate in our language as poetry, but this is Hebrew poetry. And if you could read it in the original Hebrew language, you would see how... It applies to the rules and stays to the rules of Hebrew poetry. But there's something I need you to know. Just like Genesis has a lot of Hebrew poetry in it, especially the stories of creation. That doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't mean that it's a fable or a myth. Many times poetry, songs, the songs that we sang this morning are a good example and illustration of that. They're used and they're written to illustrate truth. You can tell a true story through the form of poetry. And that's what we see happening in this book. 
this is truth. This is a true story that happened. So when we come into chapter three, we see that there's a cycle. There's three different cycles that happen through these next uh, few chapters, 30 something chapters that happen where we see Job speaking, his friends respond, and then Job will answer. And it just goes back and forth with him sharing his story and sharing what's going on. And then they answer and they're accusing him. And then he answers and takes up for himself. And there's really three questions that we see here. Is God just? Does God rule justly? And why does Job suffer? Why does Job have to go through this suffering? Job's argument is I'm innocent and my suffering is not punishment from God. I didn't do anything to deserve this. This is not God's hand of punishment on me. This is something else. Yet in Job arguing, he does accuse God and he asks the questions and makes the accusation that either God does not rule justly or God himself is unjust. Have you ever wrestled with God and asked difficult questions in the middle of your trials? I'm thankful that God allows us to do that because God's not fooled when we hide what we're really feeling. He knows what we're thinking. And he encourages us to speak that out. Now, we're not to blaspheme God. We've got to know that he is holy. He is righteous. Yet we see Job answering and asking some difficult questions. And then when Job accuses God, his friends stand up for God, which is a good thing, right? We should stand up for God when people speak against God. But they make the claim that God is just and he does rule this world justly. So their only logical conclusion was that Job must have sinned. And we see Job as he's struggling with God through this entire experience. And I want to remind you that Job's friends do have vast knowledge of God. I honestly believe that Job's friends could rival our theological understanding of scripture. The things they say are just amazing. The things they say about, about God, many of them and most of them are really, really good. The philosophical things that they bring up, these are wise men that just did not understand what was going on behind the scenes. And friends, we don't either. A lot of times we don't know what's going on in someone's life particularly. You, you walk in on someone's chapter of someone's story and you see them in that chapter, but you don't know the whole storyline. You don't know what happened before many times. You don't know what God's doing and what's going to happen in the future. So we're called not to judge people by the chapter of their story that we walk in on, but based on what God has commanded us, how we should live our lives and how we should treat other people. It doesn't mean we can't speak truth into people's lives. We're called to do that. Yet we need to understand that our knowledge is limited. His friends make false assumptions based on their true knowledge. Did anyone else grow up in a church setting where pastors did this? They'll read a verse that is true. They'll say something about God that is true. And then they'll turn that around and make an application out of that that could not be further from the truth. And we've got to be careful about doing that in our own lives and in the lives of other people. We have limited knowledge of God, of his plan and how he rules the world. So we've got to be humble when it comes to speaking into other people's lives. 
Then we're introduced to another friend, and his name is Elihu. And this friend is, is different. He says some amazing things. He says that God is just, that God rules justly. And suffering may just be a warning to avoid future sin or to build character in our life. He's like Job. He's searching for answers. Yet he, while he does not know why Job is suffering, he knows that Job is wrong to accuse God. And Job was wrong to do that. I believe Job knows what his friend is saying is right. and He doesn't even answer this friend. Yet Job demands that God come and explain himself. I've been in that situation before where I just wanted answers. I wanted God to explain himself. I've opened God's word looking for answers. And Job, even though he's, I'm sure, sinful in how he does this, he's looking in the right place for answers. He, he realizes that no friend, good friends or bad friends, not even his wife, can provide what he is needing going through this difficult trial in his life. So he turns to God himself for answers. And the third section that we see is that God does answer for himself. God shows up in a whirlwind to answer Job. And this is one of those situations where we're going to see in, in, in a few verses that God, Job actually says that with his eyes he has seen God. Now the Bible tells us that no man can see God and live. Is this a contradiction in the Bible? No, it's not. We believe this is one of the cases where we see a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Because I do believe that what Job said was true, that with his eyes he had seen God. He actually spoke with God. So this is one of the many places in the Old Testament where we believe Jesus appeared. We believe he did to Abraham as well, where Jesus appears as God. In the flesh, God the Son, and as a man, has a conversation with another man. And God does not answer all of Job's question at this point, but and, and at this point, he doesn't even let Job know about the scene that's going on in heaven. I don't know if Job ever knew this in his lifetime. Yet God revealed it to someone. So God doesn't feel obliged to answer all of Job's questions. He doesn't feel obliged. To answer all of our questions. He doesn't tell him all the intricate reasons behind the scene. What's going on in heaven. But he answers the accusation that he is unjust. Or that he rules unjustly. And the way that God does that is, is really interesting. He actually gives Job a tour of the universe. He opens Job's, Job's eyes and shows him some things that he didn't see. He'd never seen before and he wasn't aware of. And he asks him, were you there when I created everything? Were you there when I spoke the stars into existence? Were you there? And he names all of these things that Job had no idea about. He asked Job ultimately, do you know the secrets of this universe that is actually sustaining your life? We're told in the New Testament that Jesus is sustaining this entire world. All things were created by him. All things were created for him. And in him all things hold together. So God is asking Job. As you accuse me. Show me, show me this vast knowledge that you have to be my judge. Since you think you know everything. 
And God speaks very plainly with Job. Because Job and his friends assumed that they knew hidden and secret things about God and his universe without acknowledging that they have a limited perspective. And Job is not in a position to judge God. By the way, neither are we. We we don't know the story. I believe we will get to heaven one day and see some of the worst things that ever happened to us. And we will praise God that he took us down those paths. It doesn't make it any easier. But I do know that God is good. That God is gracious. He never does anything apart from his character. Ultimately, what Job is insinuating by accusing God is that he could do a better job at ruling the universe than God did. And I'm sure there are times that we think that because there are things that are going on in this world that we wouldn't allow. If I was in charge, if God gave you all power tomorrow or today and said, here, fix the problems in this world, we would set out to fix it. But I've got a strange feeling that we would mess things up worse than we could ever, ever imagine. We are in no position to judge God and we could not do a better job at ruling than our God. Here's another thing we realize from God's answers. God never promised a suffering-free life in this world. We live in a fallen world, a sin-cursed world. We forget that so many times when we ask questions. We forget that this world is broken. It's full of sin. It's because of sin that we experience pain, suffering, and death. Not that every time we suffer, it's directly because of something that we did. Yet ultimately, sin is responsible for all suffering, for all death. And we chose sin. Suffering and death are a reality in this world, and that will never change until Christ comes back and sets everything right. Redeeming his creation, creating a new heaven and new earth. God ultimately tells Job through his answers that he doesn't need all the answers. He just needs to trust the one who has all the answers. He needs to trust God. In chapter 42, we see that Job is humbled. Job repents in dust and ashes, and he declares that God's wisdom, God's power, and God's purpose are beyond reproach. That God is in control. Verse 5 in chapter 42, I love these words. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Job experienced God through his suffering in a way that he never would have experienced God's presence in his life apart from that suffering. Yes, God allowed incredible, unbelievable, there's no way to understand the suffering that was in his life. Yet through that suffering, he allows Job to experience something that very few men or women have ever experienced, an intimacy with himself as his comforter, like something that we don't really see anywhere else in Scripture. We also see in in chapter 42 that God rebukes Job's friends. Their ideas were too simple. They didn't understand through their limited knowledge what God was doing. And God defends Job. 
He says that Job spoke rightly. Now, everything Job said wasn't right, but Job spoke the truth when he said he was innocent and he was living righteously before God and did not deserve this type of punishment from God for his sin and disobedience. God validates him. God vindicates Job. And even though Job is wrestling honestly, God commends him for it. We see that in the end of this chapter, at the end of this book, Job's family and his fortune are restored. And God even doubles his blessing. His wealth, his children. And I want you to realize that just as Job's suffering was not deserved or a punishment from God, Job's blessings were not deserved and they were not a reward from God for how he performed. It's simply God's grace. God chose to bless him. God chose to remove the scar and the burden that he experienced. I'm sure that Job never forgot the pain and the suffering that he went to and he went through. Yet we see that God chooses to bless him in his grace. But at the end of this book, Job leaves us without an answer for the question as to why we suffer. But Job invites us into a life of trust in God who does know all the answers. So I want us to move on from the storyline. Let's look at the themes in this book. Just a few things I want to point out. Job focuses in this book on God's role as our sovereign creator. When God answers Job, he answers these he asks these, where were you when I did this? He asks these questions to Job. And the book of Job attests to, to God's power, his creative wisdom, his authority in a way that is unrivaled in the rest of Scripture. We get a glimpse of God through this book. Things are revealed through this book that were written about Job's suffering that we wouldn't know about God. And because God made the universe and because we realize how creative and powerful and wise he is in his authority, it reminds us that we can trust him and we can trust that he knows how to rule his creation. I'm afraid we spend a lot of time trying to get God on the same page that we're on. A lot of our prayer lives can be summed up in that trying to get God on the same page that we're on rather than submitting to scripture and praying that God's will would be done as Jesus prayed. In other words, saying, God, I'm here to get on the same page that you're on. Job also does us a huge favor by pulling back the curtain on Satan's activities. Until the book of Job, we've only seen Satan influence David for Israel's harm. But in the book of Job... We see the enemy in a full-on attack against God's servant. It even goes beyond what we see in the Garden of Eden where Satan speaks against God, tempts Adam and Eve, and they sin. This opens our eyes to how 
great our enemy is. He's nowhere near as great as our God is. But we have an enemy in this world. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of the fact that we are in a war. We are in a battle for our very lives and the souls of people around us. So we see this full-on attack against God and his servant in this book. We realize that Satan can manipulate the weather. Do you realize Satan has that power and authority under God? It's been given to him. He can manipulate a person's health. And even groups of people. He influences people to attack God and his people. But we're comforted in Job chapter 1 verse 12, chapter 2 verse 6, and even other places that God sets limits on Satan. Satan can only go so far. Satan is a defeated foe. He is on a leash. As we saw in the book of Esther, as we've seen in many other books, God allows him more leash than we would like for God to allow him. Yet God says you can only go this far. And Job also serves as an example of how righteous people are not exempt from suffering. James also talks about this in the book of James in the New Testament. And he's, he even mentions Job as an example to Christians who go through suffering. He says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endure. You have heard of the endurance of Job. And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing. That the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. It's amazing to read the book of Job. And walk away with the takeaway that God is compassionate. And God is merciful. Even though he allowed horrible things to happen in his world. In the life of Job. James takeaway is that Job is inspiring. Job should encourage us to obedience and to trust and that ultimately God is full of compassion and he's merciful. Peter warns us that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Yet we should resist Satan the same way that Job did, firm in our faith. Resisting the devil, drawing nigh to God, knowing that God will draw near to us. So we see these themes that every single one of them have applications for our lives. We deal with problems. We deal with questions. We have unanswered questions. We suffer. Yet the book of Job gives us hope that God is in control, that God is righteous. God is just. All he does is good. And even though we have an enemy, God is in control. He's sovereign. Over everything. So let's look at the Christ connection. Where do we see Jesus in the book of Job? There's some books in the Old Testament that this is a little bit more of a difficult study. We see Jesus on every page of the Bible. All of the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. That's a truth we have to realize. It's, this book is not about us. This book is pointing to our Messiah, our Savior, as Tim Keller said in that video clip. So all of Scripture is about Jesus. Yet there are some books and some chapters where it's, it's a little more difficult to see. But the book of Job is not one of those. Jesus is all over this book down to the fact that we believe we see a pre-incarnate uh, vision of Jesus where he actually comes down. 
Let's look at the theme of righteousness as we think about this Christ connection. Job is not meant to give us a specific reason for suffering. Instead, he points us to the person who suffered on our behalf. Job was declared righteous through grace. Jesus, on the other hand, was declared righteous in and of himself. Job pointed us to Jesus, but Job is just a type. He's just a symbol. Jesus is the righteous one in and of himself. He did not have to make sacrifices for his sin before God. He was sinless. Like Job, Jesus is described as God's servant. Jesus was also God's only beloved son, his only begotten son. Jesus was tempted like Job was, even by the devil himself. Yet Jesus never sinned, not even one single time. John, who we believe was Christ's best friend, human friend here on this earth, described Jesus as Jesus Christ, the righteous. Job was righteous in a relative way, but Jesus was righteous in an absolute way. He was free from all sin and deceit. It points us to the sinless, righteous one who suffers on our behalf. We see that Jesus suffered the greatest suffering. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He took the sin of the world on himself, paid the price for our transgressions. It's by his wounds that we are healed. And one of the most striking parallels between the book of Job and Jesus comes at the moment of their deepest agony. You could even say that Job endured a kind of passion that foreshadowed the passion of Christ. The word passion comes from a Latin word that means suffering or enduring. As Christians, we use that word to describe the arrest, the torture, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But in Job's suffering, we see a picture of Christ. Job lost his family, his possessions, went through intense physical pain, full of sores, disfigured beyond recognition. And Christ himself endured horrible pain, physical pain, flogging, crown of thorns, and the torture of the act of crucifixion itself. But physical pain isn't the only kind of pain we see Job going through. It's not even the worst type of pain. The worst type of pain that Job endures is the same type of pain that Christ endured. When he was accused by his friends, scorned and mocked. He says, men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They masked themselves together against me. And Job's lament is prophetic as it points forward to Christ who faced the same type of mocking, betrayal, and beating from their close friends. Yet in Job's circumstance, God did not allow Satan to take Job's life. God preserved Job's life. In contrast, God did not spare the life of his beloved son, but he delivered him up to death for our sins. Christ is the ultimate suffering servant. 
As Job pled for an advocate and for a redeemer, he's looking forward to the Christ that would come and die for his own sins and make him righteous through his own blood. The sacrifices that Job made were just a symbol and just a shadow that pointed forward to Christ's blood as Christ was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We also see that Job thought that God had abandoned him. And that reminds us of Jesus as he's on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Job's friend Eliphaz taunts Job to call out to God for help. The same thing happened to Christ on the cross as the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders who should have been his closest friends and followers. They said he trusted in God. Let him now deliver him if he will have him. Mocking the same way that Job was mocked. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm about Christ's suffering. And some of the things said by the Messiah in that psalm remind us very closely of Job's words. Where Job said, they gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. Psalm 22, talking about the coming Christ, said they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Job is a type pointing us forward to Christ. And we also see the gospel in this book. It's unmistakable. As Job is interceding for his friends who have done him great evil. Jesus Christ is the one who dies to save his enemies. And as the book of Job concludes, God rebukes the friends of Job for speaking wrongly against Job and representing God in the wrong way. And God instructs them to make sacrifices and have Job pray for them. What a beautiful picture of our Savior who intercedes for us, who suffered for us, making his enemies his friends. And while Job intercedes on behalf of his friends, Christ is our better intercessor. He's at the right hand of God praying for us eternally. We see this in Hebrews 7 and Romans 8. Since the beginning of time, Satan has been the accuser of the brethren, the children of God, pointing out our sins. Yet Christ is our Redeemer who reconciles us to God and He saves His own enemies. We see Job crying out in the middle of this book. He says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that an iron pen and lead, with the iron pen and lead, they were engraved in a rock forever. God answered that prayer. God recorded his words so that we could see them, so that we could learn from them. And in that, I believe Job is vindicated. Job gets what he's longing for, for this suffering not to be wasted. And in the same way, the suffering of Christ was not wasted. It has brought many sons to glory. Job goes on and he says in the middle of his suffering, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last day he will stand upon the earth 
And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him and not another. He's declaring the truth of the resurrection. He's declaring that God is just and righteous and his plan will be accomplished. And because of the death of Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness. We have salvation and eternal life. And as he was raised from the dead, we will be raised from death to live forever with him. We will never perish because we are the children of God. That is the gospel. And going back to my childhood, where we started, when I was playing Little League Baseball, it seemed like it was everything. It seemed like all of my life and existence was wrapped up in that experience, in that single game. Yet that game was preparing me for my life. I believe our lives are exactly like that, and Job illustrates that for us. This life is not all there is. If this life is all there is, then we're just playing games. We are foolish. If there is no resurrection, we're just wasting our time and fooling ourselves. But we know through scripture that this life matters, but it is not the end game. This is not all there is. We're here for a reason. And this life is preparing us for eternity. I wonder if we live our lives in light of that truth. That the suffering That the good times, that the good experiences, that the blessings of God are not the end. And while we do not have all the answers, we serve a God who does. He is with us. He's leading his people. We are following him. He is for us and he is not against us. And while it's true that this life is a vapor and it appears for a short time, then vanishes away. Eternity is forever. And the suffering we experience in this life is not even worthy to be compared to the eternal joy we will experience forever and ever. Job went through a short lifetime of suffering. Yet for over 4,000 years, we believe, he's been in glory in heaven with God, with his family, with no suffering. And everything has been set right in his life. It it didn't have even the fact that he was blessed with more children and more money and more possessions and more influence and respect that couldn't replace his children dying. There are things in this life that will never be set right in this life. But this life is just a blip on the radar screen of God's eternity. And yet forever and ever and ever and ever as his children, we're going to praise his name, praise his justice, praise his mercy. Praise his compassion. And I want to tell you this morning, when we get to meet Job and hear his lips say the words, God is good, even though I suffered so much. God is compassionate. God is gracious. God is just. I think it's going to take our breath away because we know his story. We know all that he went through. Yet we know he has finally seen his redeemer face to face. And everything has been set right in his life. That's the hope that we look forward to, church. Nothing happens without a purpose. 
Everything is connected to God's eternal plan, God's eternal purpose. God is good. He is sovereign. And he rules justly. And you can trust him. Father, we love you and I thank you so much for the book of Job. That challenges us. It's not an easy book to study. Honestly, God, I feel even this angst in my own heart knowing that there are probably things coming in my future that I can't handle on my own. It terrifies me to think of walking through some of the things that Job walked through. Yet God, I know that you're good. I know that you're merciful. And I know that I'll never take one step through any trial, any struggle without you by my side. And I know that everything we suffer is connected to your eternal plan. And I know that one day I will look back and see every dark hour and difficulty of my life as a moment and a temporary struggle. So Lord, while we declare these truths out loud together, and while we declare the truth of this psalm, God, I pray that you would help these truths to saturate deep into our heart, and that you would prepare us to truly walk through some dark hours for your glory, knowing that you're doing all these things for our own good, even when we can't see it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.